Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. The role our dad played was, our dad always made us understand that anything was possible. And he had a saying, he says, all that you do, do with your heart, you know, things done by half are never done well. And he kept saying that as, as we were young because he wanted us to realize that we had to always put our best effort into anything that we did. You know, he said, just, you know, go for, go for a goal, like never, never aspire for less. Born and raised in Nigeria to a family of five high achieving siblings, educated in the U.S., Recipients of the prestigious King Budwan African Development Prize for Social Entrepreneurship are this week's guests, sister Bilikis Adebayi Abayola and brother Wali Adebayi. We discuss how their parents' commitment to excellence in education and the sacrifices they made to send them to university in the US provided the platform for their subsequent success. And we explore how their parents' guidance instilled in them the work ethic, self-belief and determination to succeed. In this engaging episode, Bilikis and Wally discuss the serendipitous journey to launching and scaling WeCyclers, the innovative waste management startup based in Lagos, Nigeria, as well as their ambitions for its future development. Bilikis discusses how the idea formed while studying at MIT and how her fledgling business has scaled to become a fully operational social enterprise that is not only tackling Nigeria's waste crisis, but providing residents of Africa's largest city a convenient and incentive-based opportunity for recycling and provides low-income households a chance to generate income from their waste. Since its inception as a student project in 2012, WeCyclers has recycled 4,000 tonnes of waste, served 15,000 households and now employs 125 workers. Wally explains why in 2016 he gave up his successful career in the US to return to Nigeria to help his sister scale WeCyclers, which now collaborates with public agencies like the Lagos State Government and partners with corporations including Coca-Cola, DHL and Unilever. In this expansive episode, we go on to discuss the challenges facing the African continent, philanthropy and the role of social enterprise in addressing poverty and the environment and the need to fundamentally rethink capitalism. I hope you enjoy the inspirational story of inventiveness and commitment to social impact with Bilikis, Adebayi, Abayola and Wali Adebayi of WeCyclers. Welcome to the Impossible Network podcast, Olawali and Thank Bilikis. You. Hello. Hi. It's wonderful to have you here all the way from Nigeria. We're glad to be here. Yeah. We're really happy to be here. It's the first time we've had siblings on the podcast. We, we're happy to be the first. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Right, well, let's dive in. You're here on a bit of a whirlwind trip um, from uh, Lagos. Yes, well, from Lagos, Nigeria. And you're here seeing New York, San Francisco, Washington, promoting your entrepreneurial venture, which is called WeCyclers. That's correct. Yes. Excellent. So before we get into the specifics of WeCyclers, which I think is a wonderful idea and much needed, before we get into it, we'd like to talk about your upbringing and the impact that had on your journey. So you were born in Lagos. Talk to me about those early years and your, your, the impact of your parents on the direction your life has gone. Yeah, so obviously Wale is older, so he, I'll let him stay. <laughs> <laughs> is that obviously? Oh, there you go, yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, yeah, we wouldn't be here without our upbringing. It has a lot to do with, with where we are today. Um, we have a very traditional parents. So we were, we were all born in, um, in Lagos, Nigeria. So we were five kids. Uh, my dad and my mom were, um, were working class people. We both worked for um, civil servants, actually. And um, they pretty much, at an early stage, 
really made us understand what we had to do to be successful. And, um, you know, my dad was an accountant. He's, he's no longer here today. He actually passed um, about a year ago. It was a very big impact on our lives. And my mom was an engineer. She was an engineer, um, one of the very few electrical engineers in Nigeria at the time. So uh, they had a huge impact on, on where we are today. The first thing that we really caught up on in terms of what they expected of us was, was education. So our parents, you know, even being civil servants and not making a lot of money, really emphasized that education was the most critical part of our development. And they spent more money than most would. Um, we were sent to schools that were out of their price range. And, you know, they, they actually made a lot of compromises to ensure that we went to the best schools and had the best opportunity to be successful. Yeah, and, and just to follow up on that, you know, as a female, you know, my mom was not a typical woman. So she went to a male-oriented job. So she was an electrical engineer. And so that was a good you know, role model for me to see that, look, as a woman, you can do things that are different, that mm. people are not really doing. And then my dad, he's a, I think he was one of the, my, the first feminists that I knew in my life. So he's always encouraging me. So whenever I had issues in school, when people, you know, if I do well and people, you know, bully me, my dad is like, you know what, they're just jealous. You know, he was, he showed That's me that amazing. as, yeah, yeah. So as a woman, he, he he never looked at us and um, expected less. In fact, he expected more from us. And he's always telling us that, look, you're a woman. That's your your strength as a woman because you're a minority. So you need to show them. That's that quite visionary. Yeah. He must have had quite um, enlightened parents himself. Funny enough, his um, his father died when he was three months old. So he was, uh, so he was yes. brought around the influence of women. And he, he was raised by women. So a lot of women raised him. Ah, really interesting. All right, so that parental support and that guidance for your education was critically important. Between the two of them, I mean, were either of them more influential on the direction you've taken? It depends on who you ask in between terms of, us. In terms of the on entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Because one of them, I mean, it's un as you say, it's unusual. A mother is an electrical engineer. That in itself must have given you a sense of what's possible in life. Yeah, I think one of the things that they did, and you know, I think equally both of them had a role to play in where we are today. And it depends on the stage in our lives in, in so many ways. Because the, the role our dad played was, our dad always made us understand that anything was possible. And he had a saying, he says, all that you do, do with your heart. You know, things done by half are never done well. And he kept saying that as, as we were young because he wanted us to realize that we had to always put our best effort into anything that we did. You know, he said, just, you know, go for, go for a goal, like never, never aspire for less. And I remember a conversation earlier in my, in, in, in my childhood that he made me understand, look, the world is full of people. And that's actually when I first realized how big the world was. And he said, everybody's trying to get to somewhere. So you also have to work hard to get to that, to that point. So I think he had a big role to play in, at least for, for us as children, to be competitive, to be driven, and to be motivated. And that's actually where we got a lot of that from. Our mom, on the other hand, was the one that actually made sure... <laughs> That you delivered, yeah. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> she was on your case. So she, she, my dad gave us the goal and the vision, but then my mom actually was the one that followed up and made sure that we didn't slack off. Or uh -huh. and I know that there was a lot of bouts between me and my mom to make sure that was we, there was a competition <laughs> between the two of you. Okay, so, so Wale was the, the rascal. <laughs> so I was always the one. Uh, yeah, I've, got, I've, <laughs> you I've, could tell. I've spot that already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was always the one reporting him. I'm like, Wale, 
you messed up. I have to tell daddy and mommy. I'm sorry. So and he knows. I'll tell him in advance. Like, Wale, I gotta tell them. This is bad. So, <laughs> so he would get in trouble. And he, he, I mean, he was really good about it. You know. So I was the one that uh, my parents used to keep him in check. So like, oh, your sister got good grades. Why can't you get good grades? So, <laughs> yeah, there wasn't really a lot of competition. Like she used to blow me out of the water. Yeah. So like, <laughs> there was no competition there. Um, you know. But we were all doing well in school. I think overall. Um, so, you know, I have an older sister. Um, she actually was an accountant and is an accountant right now. I'm very successful. Um, I, I did chemical engineering, bachelor's and master's in chemical engineering. Belikis also has a bachelor's and master's in computer science. My younger brother, bachelor's and master's in petroleum engineering. And my, my youngest sister actually has a PhD in bio, biomedical engineering. So, like, I think we all were able to be successful in, in their own way because we, we followed the path that parents put us to. But... Each of us had different paths. So that was amazing that they gave you the ability to express yourself in the direction that you felt you needed to go. Yeah, I know my younger brother wanted to be a footballer, so they didn't let him. Well, I was going to say, it was always going to come around to football at some point, <laughs> yeah, you know, in Nigeria and Scotland, yeah. That didn't fly. Yeah. No, they, they won't let us do anything in that nature. But I think they were very supportive of whatever our choices were. So I actually chose my path to become a engineer. Nobody told me to do that. You know, they, they just supported it. And I think the same goes for Bilikas. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk about your education. I mean, I was blown away just by the, I mean, the courses you've done. I mean, there's uh, Indiana University, MIT, the Sloan School, both have been Florida Institute of Technology. I mean, how did you have time? How did you just fit it in? So everybody had to have a master's degree. So it was not negotiable. So that was the bar. The bar was set. It's masters or nothing. Masters or nothing. Yeah. And so. it's, you know, and they said, look, you know, and we, we could see that they were sacrificing, you know, there's a story that we always tell of my parents, because um, in Nigeria, they earn Naira, so they have to transfer dollars to the US mm. to pay for school fees. And there was a time when their car was broken, so they had to paint the car. And because they had to pay for one of our school fees, they had to pull the car out of the shop. So imagine a car that was like patchy, and then they were driving, and then it started raining, and then the car was leaking. <gasps> And then my mom started crying, you know, like, what are we doing? Are we doing the right thing? And my dad said, you know what? We're doing the right thing. Just hang in there. So, you know, that story, you know, it sticks with me because they sacrifice. They sacrifice a lot. So that just kept us going. You know, we had to deliver. Yeah, I think there's so many examples of times when I was in Florida Tech studying my bachelor's in, in chemical engineering. Every semester was always a challenge because I know that we always paid school fees late. And every semester I was at Florida Tech, I got deregistered from classes because my school fees were late. Every single semester that I was there. So they already knew me at the, at the student's uh, <laughs> finance office. And, you know, we just became mortal enemies and best friends at the same time because they always kept keeping me out of classes. And then eventually my parents would finally pay and, you know, I would be registered back into classes. But it became a cycle. And so that was always a reminder to me um, of what my mission was. And I think early on, I first it kind of wavered a bit and was kind of distracted because I was in, in, in a different country in Florida having a good time. But then it really dawned on me that I had to make sure I, I had to make sure that I had to deliver. And, um, you know, it's it's motivated us and it still motivates me till today because we we all, even though we're successful in our endeavor for education, we wanted to pay it back to them. A hundredfold. And um, I remember when I was, I went to school in uh, at Fisk University for my bachelor's degree. And my parents came to visit us, um, you know, and I was still thinking, oh, what am I going to do? I'm not sure. I haven't gotten into master's, you know. And my parents were like, uh, okay. And I had applied to Vanderbilt, but I hadn't heard back. We marched 
to Vanderbilt. <laughs> there was a, they were like, what, what, what are you talking about? Let's go. It's down the street. So we went to Vanderbilt, walked into a professor's office and said, look, my daughter applied. Uh, what's going on? <laughs> oh, yeah. They your just, parents came over. They came over to, uh, to America and they went with me to Vanderbilt to check what really happened. And I was able to get into school as a result of that visit. So my parents never left it to chance. They would always follow you literally to where you need to go to get it done. <laughs> Wow. I want to obviously talk about their reaction, the, the, the pride that, that obviously your father's past, but your mother must have in the work that you've done and where you are now. But we'll maybe come back to that. So one of the things before we get into talking about work, you've obviously gone from uh, with influential, supportive parents to come to the US and now doing this incredible entrepreneurial venture and having great impact. And I'm sure it's only, only going to scale and grow. Where has serendipity played a part in that journey? So when we when we finished secondary school, typically you, you apply to universities in Nigeria, and most Nigerians typically look at UK as an other option. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the same time, we both got admitted to University of Lagos, where to study chemical engineering. She actually was studying law. Got into University of Lagos. I was studying chem chemical engineering. Did a one year, at the same time studying for A level, so I could go to. I think I was going to apply for University of Mas Manchester. You missed. While I was doing my A levels, you know. I, I wasn't really paying attention. I was just, I, was, I already decided I was going to stay in Nigeria and I'll just study chemical engineering in Nigeria and we'll see wherever it ended. I was in class in one of the A-level um, lessons and there was several of us in the class and one of them actually was considering studying in the US. So he had applied to a bunch of different schools and he was one of those people that just had like pamphlets and a bunch of um, applications. So he kept going through it. And one day he was filling out a, a form and then he just decided to take the form and toss it in a trash can. Literally, he took the, the form and just tossed it in a trash can. I was like, why did you do that? And he's like, well, I'm, I've, I've done enough applications today and I'm tired and I didn't even want to go to that school. So I looked at the trash and I picked up this, the application and it was Florida Institute of Technology. Huh. And I said, well, I mean, this, this is a nice brochure. I mean, why would you want to throw it in the trash? Well, the first thing in your mind should have been, it's not Manchester. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I was like this, this looks like a good school. Why don't I go to go ahead and apply? And that was the only school I applied for in America. I literally filled out the form, submitted it. And a few months later, I got an admission letter in the mail saying, you've been admitted to Florida Institute and Technology. And my, my dad pulled up one day from, from his office and I was standing outside and he goes, reached out the window and stuck it, the, the letter out because he, he got it from the mill and he said here you go you got admitted and i was like you're going to america and that, that was really how that, was that happened and that's when we decided to to come to america and me coming to america actually led to bilicus uh -huh. deciding to come to study in america so that was kind of what really sparked that journey that was never in our plans we, we had no connections in the u.s it was never in what we, we were thinking about doing you mentioned. I was going to say oh, that, yeah, um, you know, so like as a result of, um, you know, Wally and I almost were going to university at the same time. So my parents already knew they couldn't afford sending two people. I was going to say, fees, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to the UK at the same time. So they had, my dad already spoke to me and said, look, you know, what are we going to do? And I said, you know what? I don't mind staying in Nigeria to study law. Just give me a car. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be fine. And he was like, okay, good. So we had already agreed that, you know, he'll go and then I'll just stay and maybe, you know, I'll be fine. And so when he went to the US, um, it was easier because he had to just do his SATs. Um, and then they just said, you know, you should just try on your SATs. And then I was very fortunate. I, I applied to Fisk University and I got a scholarship. It was right. for like $10,000. So the, the remaining school fees was not that much. And they were like, yeah. So that was why I, you know, I followed Wally right after, literally six months later, because, you know, it was, why not, you know? <laughs> 
when you were talking earlier, when you suddenly realized how big the world was, I mean, I think everyone has that that moment in their life, a realization that the world is bigger than the town or the city or the state that you grew up in. At what point did you get a, suddenly get a sense of the, this what this world was outside Nigeria? Um, I think I was probably like nine or ten. And what was it that gave you that, created that sense? It was my dad. I mean, he told me, I mean, because I remember, you know, I, I was pretty smart when I was in, in primary school. I, I didn't have to try. Like even, I guess I didn't have to study. I don't think I've ever studied in my life. <laughs> like when I was in primary school, I just had to just do what I need to do. Uh, but he knew that I wasn't fully applying myself. And I think it might, might have been common entrance. You know, we had to do this common entrance exam to go to from primary school to secondary school, one of those times. And he just wanted me to try harder. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, you're not doing enough to, to really apply yourself. And there are people everywhere that are trying to get the same thing you want. So you need to work hard so that you can you can distinguish yourself from from everybody else. So that really that really opened my eyes to the to the fact that wow, there's a bunch of people out there that are that are trying to do the same thing I'm doing, and I need to do something better, or I need to apply myself more to be able to get something that is that is better. And that's always stuck with me. Bilikis, you had similar experience. Um, yeah. So my dad was um, always, you know, he's he's what he calls him a sage because he's always saying the right thing at the right time. You know, for me, it was, you know, I, I finished school. I didn't have to do my, because it's six years in primary school. Um, so when I was in primary five, I passed the exams. Well, it's two years ahead of me, but I was able to, you know, catch up kind of. So he was always motivating <laughs> me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he was always motivating me to, you know, you know, for me, it was people just you know, bullying me because I was like the, you know, serious person in class. And everybody's like, oh, you're so, you're too serious. And he was like, you know what? They're just jealous. Just keep going. Don't stop. So he was, you know, for me, it was always motivating me. Okay. Before we get into your focus on uh, life and work, were there any other, other than your parents, any mentors or influencers that you encountered as you grew up? I think one really, one that really resonated was for me was, um, so I was studying law. So in Nigeria, in high school, you're either a, an art student or a science student. So as an art student, you don't have to do further math, physics, you know, just do like art subjects, but you have, you have to do math and English and biology. And so, you know, as an art student, I was in school, I was always coming first. I was first in math, first in English. And so one of my teachers, uh, my math teacher, was really upset with me when I was in my last year. And he's like, why are you an art student? You're the best student in math. You're the best in biology. Why don't you apply yourself? Go and do, you know, science, you know. And he was just, he was just yelling at me. And then my uncle, um, we're just talking one day and he just said, you know what? You know, computers are the future. Like everything that you're going to do in future is going to be about computers. So if you're thinking about changing careers, why don't you look at computer science? And really that was why I applied for computer science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say, Parents were biggest influence in my life and still are. My mom really was the the sergeant general yeah. motivator that always was on my case because we had so many bouts and I would say like two top big influences in my life and, and I try not to get too many external influences because I'm really internally driven and those influences that my parents gave me, except my mom just never gave up on me. And I'll tell you a story about my mom. She, from the time I was a child to I was a grown-up, would still smack me, <laughs> and even when I was eighteen. And then there was, there was and it, she was she was in charge, and she still is. But I remember she should meet my mom. <laughs> yeah, she was. <laughs> they are probably the same. Eighteen, <laughs> lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, at twenty-eight. <laughs> That's what I'm saying like even till today, <laughs> she still can smack me. But uh, I was. I remember when I was in in secondary school, and I was doing chemistry and math, 
and I was always struggling with math, and it was because I just didn't try. So my mom, we got us tutors, and I was only one had tutors, but because didn't need tutors. Um, so I had a tutor that come that came and taught us uh, math, but I just kept missing the tutors. I mean, I would just say I'll give him excuses. I'm not feeling well, or I would just run and play in my friend's house and not, just hide. So I was still not doing very well. And so one day my mom came home and the tutor was there and she was she got really upset that look, he's not doing well, where is he now? And he's like, look, he told her in his words, he says, you can take a horse to a river, but you can't force it to drink. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, he was expecting that my mom was going to like go off on me. And my mom right there and then the next one was like, you're fired. So she just fired him right there. He was, he was like, it's not my fault. He's like, no, he said, it's your fault. Because that point made me realize that my mom would never give up on me. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I was clearly wrong. I was the one I was, but she didn't give up on me, you know, because that he had given up on me. Yeah. So she, she fired him right there and then. Although I still got it after, but I, um, I, I realized that was the point. I mean, I knew that she would not let me fail. And even till this day, I, I still always look back at that because I know that she, you know, no matter what, some people always find an ally no matter how bad you do, somebody's always going to have your support and have your back. And my mom was that person. So I think those are people that really inspired me. So let's talk about we cyclers. The diversity of the work, the, the, the degrees and the masters that you've got, you could have gone in many different directions. You could have stayed in the US, gone management consulting, chemical engineering. I, you, know, you could have gone any, any direction. What was it that made you go down a route of social entrepreneurship and innovation and impact? As Nigerians, you know, obviously, I'm sure you've met some Nigerians, we're one of the most proud yeah. people. And so, you know, we have this... That's some people understatement. <laughs> understatement. <laughs> There's a, some people look at it as being arrogant, you know, unfortunately. Uh, but there's also a lot of national pride and, uh, you know, willingness, hope for the future, for the country. And so at Sloan, uh, also very serendipitous, uh, you know, second year at Sloan, it's Sloan is like the most difficult experience I've ever had in my life. Um, I went in with two small children. Uh, there was the first six months was like they call it uh, core, and it's literally going to school like seven thirty a.m. to two a.m. every day, just back to back. It was crazy, and so um, of course the second year you've gone through all that all the hell. You want something to just like chill. So there was a class where they, they was like, oh, this is really cool class. It's cool people come and talk. And it was, you know, four credits. And the professor was also very cool. So it's called Development Ventures. So I just said, okay, I'll take the class Thursdays, 10 a.m. So I don't have to wake up really early. I can sleep in. And so, um, you know, sit there and, you know, they talk about development. And they talk about Africa and how Africa is poor. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> We're not poor. <laughs> I just, just saying, have you seen our petrochemical industry? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know, because, you know, there's this view that the West has outsiders have of Africa yeah. as like a basket case and we don't think that with we think we're you know we're awesome mm-hmm. and so you see people with statistics and I'm like oh and I'll you know I'll double check and I'll say oh it's true we're actually poor wow so that for me that was like a shift change and then Nigeria 70% poor and then you know they have students MIT students that come to talk to us and you know people working in Africa, Guatemala, India. But then what really struck me was that the people that come and talk about Africa, there were no Africans. So they'll tell me, they'll say, oh, like, yeah, we're going to give people water for plastic. I'm like, no, they're not going to take water. Like, the people don't get it. And so we were having, um, you know, you know, like uh, meetings and I'll would, I would just be the one proud. I mean, initially, I was the Nigerian that would debunk because I was like, you know what, I'm just going to follow them and give them 
it some sense. So like if they say something that I think is crazy, I'll be like, no, this is crazy. It's not going to work. So I was just that person that was like, no, no. <laughs> and then after a while, I was like, okay, yeah, okay. Like, yeah, let's, let's sit down. Let's work on it together. And then I had to go to Nigeria for, Chris, uh, for IAP. We have one month off at MIT. And um, so we went to Nigeria. And we're like, okay, let's just do a test um, of what we're doing. The, the Public Service Center at MIT gave us a small grant. So we went and um, so we went to a, a community and we said, okay, look, just give us your trash. And so was this because of the class had a specific task, which was around plastics? Yes. So it was a, so the class was basically all you need to do is submit an abstract. And there was a, like, I have to give people credit. At the initial stage of WSEC, there were some women, Diana, um, Alex, that were very, Diana Youssef, Alex Fallon, they were very, very instrumental because they were pushing and making sure we submitted our assignments. And at the, the end of this class, which is, was in December, we submitted a, an abstract. And the abstract, the professor encouraged us. It was, it was so good that he said, you know what, why don't you take it to the public service center? And, you know, apply for a small grant. And so the same abstract, just copy and paste, emailed it. And they gave us $1,000. And so we're like, okay, we have $1,000 now. Bilikis is going to Nigeria in January. Why not, you know, do something? So, um, you know, Diana Youssef, you know, she had a lot of friends in the, in the, you know, impact investment and all that. So she was emailing people. And so we had put together a small pilot. So it was, it was going to work. And so we went to Lagos. And, you know, that was when we had the uh, 2012 riots. So there was like the government changed the price of fuel and there was so much riots happening in the, in the country. And so we said, OK, we, we have to go to the communities a few weeks before um, and prepare their minds. Because, you know, we had this American mindset where they have to know in advance. They have to put it in their calendars, even though we're going to the low income communities. And so, you know, the, the dates for the event was coming up. It was an event where people would bring their trash um, and they would get raffle tickets and, you know, there'll be a raffle draw at the end of the event and then they could win things like, you know, camera, phone, things like that. And so right the day before the event was when they called off the, the protests and we're thinking, should we cancel the event or not? But we had, you know, we said, okay, you know what, we've already printed our flight, let's just do it. And so literally on the day of the event, we started at 10 o'clock. And we were thinking, nobody's going to show up. Oh, my God, this is a failure. But we had to, you know, do something and so that we could report back to MIT that we had spent the money, you know. And so we had music playing. And some people were walking by and said, what's going on? And we said, just bring your trash and we'll give you raffle tickets. So literally, people will just go. And within five minutes, they're back with trash. And we're like, wow. <laughs> so within like 30 minutes, the whole place was full of people. And then we're now doing um, focus groups with young people, yeah, young children, 10-year-old children. And we're asking them, how, when you think about trash, how do you feel? And one of the children was like, I feel sad. And we're like, why do you feel sad? He said, because in his compound, everybody's fighting. Because somebody would drop trash. Then somebody would say, that's your trash. So for, for him as a child, it was a point of sadness. So for us, that kind of motivated us to, you know, to follow up. So that's really how we started I'm going to stop there. <laughs> okay. No, no. That's awesome. I mean, I, I just going to add to that. Like, I joined WeCyclers um, 2016. So well into the, the development of the company. Billigas had done a lot already in terms of, you know, growth and, you know, traction. Uh, when I came on board, you know, it was very, very random because mm -hmm. I had moved back to Nigeria. I quit my job in, in the U.S. So we had both... Myself worked in, in the U.S. For, for a period of 10 years. I worked for a steel company. I felt confident that I had achieved what I needed to achieve in the United States. I really felt that way. So I said, I need to go back to Nigeria and apply myself while I'm still fairly young 
to the development and the growth of Nigeria. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was just going to do something to help Nigeria grow. So when I moved back to Lagos, um, no, I had no job, no plan. I just was hanging out with Belikis because she was already in Lagos. Lagos used to follow everywhere she went. So one day we were at the, at the hub and I was like, look, I'll just give you free advice for how to develop we cyclers because my background is in operations. I've run plants, hired people, you know, I've managed you know, departments, so I know how to run a company. So I said, I'll just help you set up operations, you know, for free. I'll come once in a while to give you advice and, you know, just to help you clean things up a bit. And I just would go to the hub, watch things, spend time looking at what people are doing. And what struck me was was the sorters, like the women that sort, they, they were always there working. Um, and these women pay money to transport themselves from their homes to work every day. And they don't make a lot of money, but they work. And so I was just like, wow, these women are just committed and they're just very dedicated to this cause. And they're doing their job just to earn a living. So in, in my mind, I was like, there's no way I can leave these people behind. I don't care what it is. I, I can't just go find a nice job in an office, making good money and just feel comfortable that these women and they're still just doing what they're doing. I said, I have to be able to help them, whatever it is. And I remember in the, in the hub, I told Belikis, look, we're going to have to make this full-time or something. We're going to have to just make this official because <laughs> I'm going to have to be here full-time to help you know, the women. Obviously, we cyclists couldn't afford to pay me. You know, so I said, I'll do it for free. And um, But you know, I felt like that is something that we had to do and we were going to be successful together. Um, so we set up you know, the whole situation and, you know, this uh, three years now. Let's put some context on this because a lot of listeners of the podcast come from many parts of the world that might not have the context. Many people probably think Lagos is the capital of Nigeria. It's not. It's uh, Abuja. Um, but it is, I believe, the largest city, um, certainly the most populated, fastest growing uh, metropolis, probably in Africa. Yes. And obviously growing fast. So struggling to process rubbish um, and trash must be a real challenge and that's where why you obviously created we cyclers could you um, just explain the actual sort of process of your innovative waste management system that's now in place um, just so that we the listeners understand exactly how it works yeah and just to kind of jump on your Lagos um, give you some more statistics on Lagos um, if Lagos were a country it would be the top in terms of GDP would be number five in Africa so we'll be ahead of Kenya and Ghana and when you look at Lagos with in, um, in comparison to other Nigerian states it's pro- it's the most viable Nigerian state so a lot of commerce is happening there people there are earning money and they are actually sending money to other states so in terms of um, like the, the uh, expenditure and all that. So a lot of people from other states where they can't find jobs, they come to Lagos. So Lagos is like the New York where, you know, you make it in Lagos, you can make it anywhere. Yeah. So there's a, a statistic, I'm not really sure, but they say like every hour, um, 77 people move to Lagos every hour. Wow. Yeah. So about 700 people moving to Lagos every day. So what's the population in Nigeria at the moment? It's about 170 million? Right about that. Yeah. And it's um, estimated to be about 30, Lagos estimated to be about 35 million in the next, uh, so it's, it's going to be a massive, and it's the smallest state. It's a very small state. So it has all these issues, very small state um, landmass. I think it's about 778 square kilometers. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people there. There's also a lot of poverty there. 66% of Lagosians are poor. And so, you know, when you look at um, the waste being generated in Lagos, it's about 13,000 tons 
of waste every day. So if you look at it in terms of a car, so one car is one ton. So that's 13,000 cars by weight being generated in Lagos every day. Only about 40% is collected. The rest is in communities. You know, Lagos is one of the top 10 polluters of the ocean because just because we're near the water. So it's just a big issue. And so we, um, and there's also not a lot of infrastructure in terms of roads in these low-income communities. Presumably, the pace at which the city is growing, just the, the, the city authorities can't keep up with infrastructure. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's just not enough money. They don't, I mean, there's, there's a will, but there's not enough money to do that. And so, you know, just because, you know, they don't have enough, you know, IGR, they're trying to grow the IGR, trying to grow, um, you know, funding, but there's not enough money. So when you go to these communities and they have, they've all sprung up literally maybe overnight, so there's no roads, no public services. And so you, and you have a very high population density. So many people are living in small quarters. So for just to give an example, when we first started Recyclers, we were doing a, a study and we were asking people, okay, we were thinking, okay, in your house, how many of you live in your house? And people were like, you know, in our room, nine of us. So we're thinking, you know, average is four people per house. And it was like, no, it's nine people per room. Because most people in those communities live in rooms, one room. And so we said, okay, let's figure out how we can get make trash into a solution. Because in, in these communities, there's trash lying around, you know, stagnant water because the trash is, you know, yeah. clogging the drainages. There's mosquitoes, there's malaria, there's flooding. How do you turn that into a solution? So what Recyclers does is it's a very low-cost collection system. We have, um, we started off with bicycles, so cargo bicycles. Um, so we go to the people's houses, they register to us, uh, to our service, and we put them on a schedule. So we go to their houses and say, look, Sort your plastics, sort your cans, your paper, your sachets. We'll come and pick it up. So we have collectors that come and they weigh in front of the customer. They record it. And then when they record it, they put it in the bike. And then within a couple of hours, the person gets an SMS on their phone. And that SMS tells them, okay, you gave us 20 kilograms of plastic. So this is how many points. So that each type of waste has a corresponding points value per kilogram. So for instance, plastics is 10 points per kilogram. And so they get points. And then every time they recycle, they get points. And then every three months, we have a redemption where they can exchange their points. So they can exchange it for household items. So we started off with food, but people didn't like that. Household items. But now, you know, with Wale pushing, it's cash. So people can actually say, you know what? Every three months, they can exchange their, their household items for money. Amazing. And then we take the trash to the various community, um, various sorting hubs. So we've, been, we've partnered with Lagos State Government. They've given us spaces around Lagos. And we have sorters there sorting the trash. And then we also have uh, machine operators that bail the trash. And then we sell that to recyclers. So we've been able to identify that, you know, a lot of the trash that people are generating are actually inputs in people's factories. So we collect that. It's like reverse logistics. We collect the trash and sell it to someone that would use that trash to make a new product. That's fascinating. What I love about the idea is you've combined old technology bikes with new technology in terms of mobile SMS. Okay, not that new, but it is a, it's a new technology compared to bikes. And the, uh, you've applied a gamification layer to it, which is really clever. And then you've got a reward system. And as a result of it, creating a market that didn't exist. It's just, it's a genius idea. Question is, how do you scale it beyond Lagos? Because the imperative to address the the sheer and rapid um, growth in metropolises and conurbations across Africa to deal with this, the urgency of this issue must be something that is very much at the front of your mind. All the time. That's a great question on, on how do we scale this? Um, because we cyclers, you know, we know we have an innovative idea that is proven. We've, you know, 
We have a company that has over 180 people actively working for us as we speak. So, you know, we're supporting a lot of families and lives. So we're very, we're very conscious of the fact that our idea is, is working and we want to make sure that it's sustainable and scalable, not just across Lagos or Nigeria, but even across Africa. Absolutely, yeah. And we get a lot of interest from people all over the world that come to us and ask us to be part of, you know, to, to come to their communities and, and do something there. So we're very aware of this. And one of the big things that we have to do to, in order for us to scale is to ensure that we have, you know, a good model that works. And we spent a lot of time to ensure this. One of our barriers has been the fact that the work that we're doing is fairly low margin. So if you're working in collection, you're adding, you're adding very little value. So we don't necessarily create enough value to get more money out of this to allow us to scale, make profits. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things investors are always looking for is, well, how much revenue are you making? How much profits are you making? Because the number is multiplied to much more profits for the investors if they if it's a good business model. Um, so what we're doing in this current state is essentially we're creating a supply chain that needs to exist. Yeah. That supply chain needs to exist, but nobody has been willing to invest the money to su- support that supply chain. Everybody wants to find out, have you, have you fixed it yet? If so, then we're going to give you money. So what we've been doing is really working to develop the supply chain. Uh, we've had to figure out ways to lower cost, be much more efficient. And because the concept of moving plastic is very expensive in itself, you're moving air in a lot of ways. So you have to figure out a way to be more efficient in a city where, like Lagos, where the infrastructure is pretty efficient. Um, if, you're, if you're comparing it to other countries across the world, waste collection across the globe is, is subsidized by either the customer or the person that actually is getting their waste collected or yeah. the municipality. In the case in Lagos, neither of the above. So we actually pay to to collect your waste and then we sell it. Mm-hmm. So what we've and been hence why the profits are very limited, low. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So we had that struggle. So, but we, we, well, even with that being said, we understand that there's still a, a, something that that we can actually sell and and grow. So our, our our focus has been to get as much volume as possible as cheaply as possible, and that allows us to have more market share, control a wide subscriber base that a lot of people will be interested in, in keying into and also being able to make impact. And I think that's why we're focusing on impact investors that are looking not just for the bottom line, which is the cash cash part of it, but also how many lives are you impacting? Mm-hmm. How many people's lives are you changing? Yeah, because I mean, the impact isn't just profit. It has to be much more about the sustainability of those communities and the, and the productivity and the health of those communities. So there is a societal sort of benefit. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that we are keying into and we're seeing. We have a lot of examples of people that are going out for the first time in their lives to collect plastics and changing their lives. Mm-hmm. We have a lady called Ia Daniel, and we've been talking about her a lot. She um, just joined WeCyclers about a year ago, and she just heard about us by seeing people picking up plastics. She decided to pick up plastics. She used to sell goods on the side of the street, which she still does, uh, but she just said, look, on my, my part, spare time when I'm not doing much, I'm going to go look for plastics. She today brings us over 200 kilograms of plastics a day on average, which is an amazing wow. number. It's crazy just to imagine that. And then in a period of three months, so we just did a redemption, we paid her almost $1,000 in cash, which she was obviously blown away. She didn't know what to do with the money because like, she has never seen that much money in her life. So 
we actually had to pro, you know provide support on how to manage that, that that money for a lot of our subscribers because some of them have never seen this amount of money in their life so we know that this actually has an impact on people's lives um so that aspect is something that we are very aware of but if you're trying to scale you need money from investors that don't necessarily see those 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 benefits what we are looking at doing as a you know a growth strategy is to go to other communities we're looking at investing in a franchising model that allows us to reach out to entrepreneurs across Africa that also want to do good in their communities in return for that we provide training and we provide them support in some cases equipment we collect their recyclables and that build our supply chain and our volumes mm-hmm. and that's really our goal and ultimately in the long run we want to invest in value addition whereby we can actually take these materials plastics paper cans add value to it and get more from of the margin um that's our strategy to actually grow and, and expand our volumes so you have these people going out on bikes going into local communities when they go out on the bikes the bikes are empty isn't there some way that you could have a mechanism or a marketplace where the bikes are delivering something that create sort of like a, a reverse reverse uh, yeah. we've tried so we tried that's uh, um, why we spent yeah, I'm sure yeah. we've reached out like oh we can help DHL we can help Conga but you know one of the issues is that um you know it's trash so some companies may not feel comfortable associating associating yeah. trash because it may be food maybe things like that mm. but now that we're seeing more logistics um you know acceptance now that could be something that what what we try to do is just focus because it's, it's the business like what is is a very low margin business so we're driven by we, we follow the money and so the 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 riders of you know the the, the recycles now we we have um, motorized tricycles mm-hmm. so we've stopped using bikes and bicycles just because of the stress question is when the drones coming Oh, that, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm serious. I mean, it's got to be on the roadmap. Yeah. So I think you know what? I'm sure if we had drones, we would have gotten some investment by now. Yeah. I think investors they just like tech. Yeah. So, but that's a good that's a good one. Um. So every kilogram of trash that they collect, they they make money from that. So what we've seen is that the riders we could give them today one uh, 50 customers because we've done we've done the numbers okay it takes you 5 minutes you can do 50 you rest whatever what they do is they go for one or two people in a day that are going to give them a lot so a lot of times it's um people you can try to create um and map out what you think will work but people will self select and do yeah. what is easiest you know this path of least resistance to go for what is easiest and what is most efficient so i don't know how that will work in terms of you know practically yeah. yeah i mean it's something that we we'll consider i mean we we are doing a lot of different things i mean right now we're using a, a technology app so recyclers is technology driven we have a technology app that allows us to see exact locations of our riders it's a turn by turn gps software tool so they can we can tell them go to this house a and they follow it to house a and so that's something that we we are also going to leverage in, in order for us to be able to to potentially monetize it uh we are always very cautious about trying to do too much Uh, we've tried a lot of different things you know we even tried value addition and it worked for a little bit uh whereby we were making our own shredded flakes to get more cash and more profits but what we learned was that you know that business requires a lot more capital to support it and to ensure that we can do it reliably and we 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 lost a lot of money doing mm-hmm. that and you know essentially in terms of our growth it's it hurt our growth opportunity and it, we would have probably been maybe much further along in terms of volumes than we are right now because we took our eye off the ball from the collection aspect and focusing on efficiencies in collection and um, now we've we've realized that look our business is 
be the best collector in in Lagos and in the world, cost wise, and then ensure that you know when we serve ourselves in in that marketplace and have the volumes. I mean, we, we can dictate our price at that point. Um, currently, in, we've, we've we've done some impressive things and. We're, we're collecting over 200 tons a month of PET and, and, and other recyclables. And a lot of people can't say that, you know, and they have a lot more assets than, than we do. Such an impressive story. You've just won, won this um, award, the, Afri- the African Development Prize for Outstanding Contributions uh, to the Development of Africa. Could you just explain a bit more about that award and then how you were nominated? The award was actually a mystery to us up until we found out that we're finalists. <laughs> At least me and myself, because we had no idea about, I didn't even know what it was. The King Badwan Africa Development Prize is given every two years to people that are positively contributing to the development of Africa that are, that are from Africa. Indigenous, yeah. Yeah, so the, one of the recent um, winners, Dennis Mukwegwe, is a very famous guy because he just won the Nobel Prize too. Um, also, um, Yunus, uh, Mohamed Yunus, yeah. from the Grameen Bank, also a winner. And you know we were pretty hopeful that we follow those those steps because both of them won Nobel prizes. So if Velikis wins the Nobel prize, I'll be very happy. Yeah, you've been. <laughs> so just keep working. Heading to, heading to Oslo. Keep working. Yes. <laughs> um, so we we but we were very happy that you were in very good company, and um, our, we have a team of, of people within our company that are always looking for opportunities to get grants. Um, and then I think one of our former employees nominated us to be winners or to be selected and I found out about the prize when we got the email and saying that we're one of the three finalists and, and I still didn't know what it was and I thought it was like a something from the Middle East because that's King Badwan like, <laughs> sounded, it sounded, sounded, sounded from Middle East I was like I, I swear I, I, and I had to go to Google I said what is King Badwan <laughs> and I realized late in the game that it was a Belgian prize yeah. and I still didn't know up until truly when they had scheduled a site visit uh, with us in Lagos really what what it, this meant we we didn't, we didn't have a clue and so when we were announced the winner i mean obviously by that time we, we had a very good idea of what it was it really changed our thought process because even the prize money i didn't know how much it was i didn't i didn't even know we were going to win money you know it was just it was a game changer because the king Bernard foundation is not just um, a supporter in from a financial standpoint in terms of being there with you like you know you have you know afiza with us today moving with us, uh, their, their friends, their supporters, their allies, they're truly committed to our success. And I can say that, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, you know, they, they really want us to be successful and they're going out of their way to make sure that we get in front of as many people as possible to, to amplify the work that we're doing. And I think it's gone a long way already to talk about how we can keep growing recyclers and keep expanding. Yeah, it's a, it's an it's incredible. I yeah, mean, it's the, about two hundred thousand euros, <laughs> so, and they don't have a requirement on how to spend it. They're like, look, don't go spending it on growth. They're like, you, you better just make sure that you you take care of yourself. Make sure the company is, is fine. You know, you put things in place that that uh, you wouldn't normally have the opportunity to because of your limited resources. So you're dealing with single use plastics, a massive issue. Obviously, there are other large social issues we need to address, and. Particularly when you talk about Africa, people naturally think about philanthropy. They think about charity. And we know that the solutions, if you you speak to, um, like I think the writer Anand Giordardis, who wrote the book, Winners Take It All, if you haven't read it, should, um, talks about the um, doing well by doing good isn't enough, um, that we have to sort of stimulate innovation um, from within. So obviously there's a massive entrepreneurial sector emerging in Africa. 
Is it something that you're hopeful for in terms of the other people like yourself and the sort of startup sector um, in Nigeria? And I know there's uh, there's a very strong sort of startup community emerging in Kenya and some of the other African nations. What's your view in terms of your hope and vision for the future of the African continent generally and dealing with these big social issues? Yeah, I'm going to throw another book recommendation your way. Um, if you haven't read it, you should read uh, Prosperity Paradox. I've heard uh, of that. Yeah, yeah. it's written by a friend of mine, Fosu Ajomo and uh, Clay, Clay Christensen. Yeah, yeah um, someone re- recommended that recently. Yes, you should. It's a yeah. fantastic book. And uh, you know, one of the things that they talk about is you know when you look at America and how American companies grew, they were social businesses. Mm. You know, so what we are trying to do is in, in Africa, like you said, it's not about charity, and it's also not about pure profits. You know, how can you create social businesses that are able to build, uh, you know, viable value chains you know so for we cyclers we're focusing on environmental management focusing on women empowerment financial inclusion and creating businesses a business that solves all those issues and what we've seen is that you know we've been very fortunate um we're thankful for all the awards and press that we've gotten but that has also been able to build a lot of interest in this kind of sector. So we are seeing now more and more people wanting to start businesses in the environmental space, wanting to solve you know, societal issues because we think of it as it's not a problem, it's an opportunity. Yeah. And so how do you create businesses that are ticking all those boxes and building markets? And and for us, that's, that's really the thing. You know, in America, the waste sector employs about 4 million people. In Nigeria, there is a, an ability, once we're able to build you know, build out this model, have the right policy in place, we can, this waste business can actually create a lot of jobs. So we're looking at that, you know, there's issues in education, there's issues in healthcare, and we're seeing more and more entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs that are waking up to this and trying to build scalable businesses that solve these problems. Well said. As you can see, Belikis is the optimist and I'm more of the cynicist between (laughs) very, um, I'm more very task-driven and very, very focused. I mean, I agree with Bilik is 100%. I mean, this, this, what the work we're doing has created awareness around social businesses, and it's necessary. Uh, I, I kind of came up with this uh, phrase now that, you know, nobody cares about the planet and poverty. I mean, that's, that's how I feel. I don't think anybody cares about the planet and poverty, because if they did, if people did, we would have much more resources behind these problems mm-hmm. that we're facing. And I think we have to raise awareness to everybody about the challenges that are ahead of us, especially with this crisis of, of the environment. It's a massive crisis, and we need to change the way we think about business. We need to change the way we think about what is the goal of business, because most businesses now are focused on, are still focused on profits, yeah. as opposed to what is the impact? What, it, what, does, what does a business need to do to accomplish in a society? So I, I'm really worried, um, and I hope that there's a, ch- a shift change in the perception about business and what it needs to be and what, what the return needs to be, what it needs to look like. And we're not asking for handouts, and even if nobody gives us any money, we'll be happy to continue to work hard and, and create value. And we know we're going to be successful eventually, but we're not, a, we're not big enough and we're not to, to, to make a change in the world as a whole. We need everybody to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Not just we cyclers. It's funny, we had a, a guest on recently called John Havens from the IEEE, and he said, if there's one term that will that will signal our demise as, as humans and the planet, is we hit our numbers. Mm-hmm. 
He said, this ever-enduring focus on meeting quarterly numbers is the thing that is going to stop us from solving uh, solving the issues, the social issues that are threatening the planet, the environmental issues, and not seeing the broader perspective, as, as you said, Bilikis. This is not just about profit. It's about social impact. It's about building sustainable communities. And I think that's the, the one thing. There needs to be a, a rapid change in the way that organizations start to think beyond just meeting those quarterly earnings. And it has to come from the investment community. It's got to come from uh, large institutional investors, because if we don't change it, then that carbon clock that's ticking down that um, Greta Thunberg talks about, we're going to hit that in eight years time and there's no way back. So it's got to, it's got to be addressed. Absolutely, and it's it's like you know Greta is like she's my hero because you know she's taking things on and she's telling people that look the future our children are angry with us, you know that's the that's the way I look at it. I have a um, thirteen year old kid and a ten year old child and I can imagine my kids yelling at me and saying look you messed the earth up yeah. and you know we talk about um, impact investors um, you know Wally and I we've been in this business for a long time and we've seen that impact investment community is not really focusing on the right impact space you know they say they're impact investors but are they really solving you know supporting businesses like recyclers you know you look at um, some of the investments that are happening in that space and they are not really impact investments so i think even the investors that are impact investors should wake up to impact the impact space because there's so much that is not being supported that needs to be supported you know, apart from even the just the pure profit making um, community, there are people that are making, you know, they're raising funds to solve societal problems. But are they really solve? Are they really backing those businesses? You know, th that's a yes. big issue. Okay, we're going to move on. I think if people were more aware of that countdown, carbon countdown clock, and saying we have now got eight years, however many days and hours, it's but it counts down. Going, that's we hit that time. It's a bit like watching the countdown to your death. It's like global death. And I think if we can't take tools like this and put them in the hands of people to empower them at scale, it's going to take a, a groundswell of individuals across the world, whether it just be school, climate strikes or other act activism happening to compel businesses and investors to change. It's going to require behaviour change on all of us. But it's it's you can't just have it happening in in places like New York or it has to happen everywhere. And as as you travel around the world, whether it be in Thailand or in Scotland or Nigeria, it's just terrifying to look at the plastic everywhere that's sitting in stores waiting to be purchased. So we've we've got to reimagine, I believe, the the fundamentals of capitalism yeah. is at the heart of this, and that's going to require system change at scale. But maybe this is another a follow-up podcast we can do. But I mean, I'd love just to get your your perspective in terms of your opti your optimism and, and maybe cynicism or pessimism. What's your sense of the maybe the sort of the geopolitical or the socioeconomics of changes that might be happening? Because you must be having conversations with people that enlighten you to things that maybe the rest of us aren't aware of because you're at the forefront of driving change. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, when everybody talks about the carbon, um, you know, the great growth that a lot of um, the West has done, you know, and everybody's telling America and, you know, the West is telling China to stop emitting fossil fuels. And then China says, no, you guys, when you were growing, you emitted fossil fuels, so we have to do that. So in Africa, it's the same thing. You know, the West is already polluted massively. And then you look at African countries coming up and, ha and growing, and they say, oh, 
we have now we have to stop consuming plastic mm. and then you look at the socio-economic issues a lot of people you know these companies that are selling to these um, low-income populations they have to sell in small pouches because that's what people can afford but those pouches and those things the way they package them they're not recyclable so there are issues even at that where you know people are trying to market and sell to the poor but then even the packaging where you think you're trying to save you know people are not pricing the environmental impact because companies get away with polluting you know the you know as i think there's issues with governments and uh, you know the private uh, you know ngos need to work on actually pricing these things so you can say this thing is less than 50 cents and sell it to this person but what about the impact on the environment when they when they use it and toss it Who's pricing that? Yeah. All right. So um, in terms of optimism, I'm, like, um, I'm not optimistic um, because I feel like I feel like there is um, there is a behavioral issue that we can't turn the tide on. Like humans, we haven't displayed that we're able to change behaviors mm-hmm. um, readily, and we we have to rethink like you said, what capitalism is, mm-hmm. because that's what drives us. Yes, Success wins. Those things drive us. We can't tell people to say, oh, start recycling because it's better for the environment mm-hmm. and we hope they're going to do that. It's probably not going to happen. We need to make it part of winning in society. And when it's part of winning in society, then people will want to win and would do what it, it takes to win. Uh, so I think defini- defining what winning and how a society needs to operate is really key in any type of change that we're trying to consider as a society and as, as a people, governments need to think about what their metrics are. Like It's not okay for a country to be recycling like 10% and think that they're still doing well. You know That shouldn't be a successful story. And a lot of countries, even developed countries, are only recycling at 10%. And then packaging, how do you package things? And what, how, do you, how do you consume? What is the level of consumption? And I'm not saying you need to take away profits from companies or businesses and, and take away jobs. What it means is we need to rethink what that success looks like. In Africa, I, I think, and I'm very strong about the, the, the notion that we have to consider how to change the goal, the trajectory. A lot of us have kind of fallen in line and want to keep up with the Joneses. And we want to do what the developed countries are doing. So, well, you guys have natural gas fire power plants, so we have to have them. You have nuclear fire power plants, so we have to have them. And, you know, these are things that we want to have aspirationally. But we need to step back and ask, like, do we really need that? Are there alternatives? You know, can we become ecological champions? Plant, like, Blake is, once, Blake is always big on planting trees. Can we plant the most number of trees in a century as Africa? Is that something that we can do and try to recover the environment as opposed to trying to build all these plants um, and then create well-being in a different sense. Mm-hmm. You don't have to live in a skyscraper maybe to be successful. Maybe you can live in a nice, you know, good, clean environment and that's success. Uh, so I feel that we have to redefine success because we're always going to try to keep up. We're always going to be trying to catch up to the U.S. and we're going to build more chemical plants. We're going to make more plastics because we want to be like the developed country. Uh, so Africa needs to redefine success. I agree. And you need to redefine what the vision is of the future of capitalism. Exactly. Or beyond capitalism. Moving on, you mentioned early on about the importance of education for you. It was at, at the very sort of core of your success and your parents in, that set that high bar. What would you do to change um, the education system if you were given the keys to whatever, let's say, governmental ed- institution to change the fortunes of young people? to create an education system that that prepares them for the future that lies ahead? 
I think in um, I mean I'm very familiar with Nigeria. Uh, I think in Nigeria we teach people to cram, um, and there's really no purposeful knowledge that has been impacted. My daughter was telling me that why am I learning the Pythagoras theorem? Am I going to use it? I, I I don't I don't think I used it, and I've been you know I've been I'm at 37, um, so I Easy. think you use it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there is a lot um, you know in Nigeria, for instance, uh, where there needs to be vocational. Um, some focus on vocation everybody wants to have a university degree it's like it's no matter who you are everybody wants to have a university degree but there's some people that sh- don't need to go to university because they just cannot you know they, you have people that have bachelor's degrees and they have to do menial jobs because there's no jobs and they don't even they cannot even um, you know they don't have the skills so I think there needs to be a lot of focus on creating um, you know vocational education we also need to really work on technology so a lot of jobs are tech jobs. So we need to train our, you know, young people to be comf- comfortable with technology, to create, you know, to, you know, do a lot of things on online. And, you know, there will be a lot of opportunities for them to have jobs. And, you know, Wale is a big advocate for Nigeria having a steel plant because we also need a large manufacturing sector mm. that would drive, you know, job creation. So I think there needs to be some people sitting down, looking at, okay, where are the jobs, you know, look at long-term for the young children, but also the people that are going into the job market every day. How can we, within three months, six months, train them and do that? I mean, the Lagos State Government, um, Lagos State Employment Trust Fund, um, I'm on the board of that, and we're doing a fantastic job already. We partnered with UNDP, and we have employability programs where we are training young people into jobs, you know, real jobs now. And we're also supporting young entrepreneurs with loans and also um, tech jobs. Okay. I didn't ask you the role of curiosity and how it impacts your life. Yeah, uh, I think for me, I, um, I, I always question. <laughs> I'm, I'm, more, I'm more fact-based. I want to understand the, the facts behind things. I don't take things on face value. Uh, so, te- so for me, I've always questioned and dug deeper in, in situations as opposed to just taking people's word for it. In every situation I've been in, so working in, in the steel industry, I... I dug deeper. I, I worked towards what I felt was getting to get into that realization. And the same thing, you know, when I moved back to Lagos, you know, it was it was more of just what is what is in for me for my destiny. And I think it tied to risk. I don't I don't really consider risk in situations. I just look at the opportunity, and I, I realize, look, I'm going into this this journey. I'm not scared about the risk and what 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 are the things that could potentially go wrong. But I'm just worried about like what what am I going to learn? What am I going to gain from? From such an endeavor, so I think that's what what has been driving me, you know, in this in this in this journey. Yeah, yeah, the same. And I think you know we have this education, so that education has given us a lot of comfort. So you know, when people say, "Oh, why are you going to Nigeria? You are waste, you know, yeah, call it kole kole. You are packing waste, you know, and you have a degree from MIT." And I'm like, "That's why I'm doing it because <laughs> if it doesn't work out, I can always get a job, you know. So that allows you to take those risks because you've managed." the risk, the bad side. And now you can say, okay, how is it going to work out? And, you know, asking questions, you know, we're always asking questions. We're always testing new things that we cycle as we're always trying things out. And it's, you know, you know, one of the sayings that we had early on is everybody in Nigeria is, why not? We have, you know, we have, I think we're a very curious country because people are like, okay, you want to do this? Okay, why not? You know? <laughs> okay. The quick five questions. What principles do you stand by? I mean, for me, it's hard work and resilience. I mean, um, those are my, those are my two key principles in life. I think that you know, in whatever you do, you have to work hard. Yeah. So hard work is one of my number one principles, I guess. 
I think grit and fairness. Nice. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? Uh, for me, moving back to Nigeria. I mean, I, I remember when I decided, I, I, I quit my job and my boss was like, what? And my first call was to my dad and to just say, hey, I just quit my job and I'm coming back to Nigeria. And, you know, that, that was a very tough decision to make. And I remember looking at the sky saying, hmm, look at this. I wonder what the future has in store for me after quitting my job. But looking back, it was a very good decision. I think for me, it was letting Wally run with cyclists. Stepping aside. <laughs> <laughs> that's a you great don't want to expand uh, more on that. Uh, that's, a, that's a great Is answer. No, no, I really didn't have that in mind when I moved back. But <laughs> eventually it became something that I did. But I had not, I, I didn't have that in mind. Okay. So yeah. why did you move back? Yeah, yeah, I moved back because I felt like I had done a lot in, in the US. I had made the impact I needed to make. And in, I, I was more of maybe, I, I hit a midlife crisis early. I was 36. And I was, you know, questioning my purpose. And I started questioning my purpose more. And I watched a show on, uh, I think it was on BBC or one of these shows. On, it was news. I was sitting in my, my living room at the time while I was working. And I watched the show. And they were talking about South Sudan. And in South Sudan, they had this crisis where these women, refugees, were trying to escape the war. And some of them were feeding their children with grass. They had to decide to feed their children grass. And one day, you know, they, they said, look, we would rather make them sick than make them hungry. And there was another woman that they, they went to the refugee camp and they were talking to some of the representatives for the refugee camp and she had about four, four or five children with her. And they were talking to her and she just said, as a matter of fact, just in, in a matter of fact way, she pointed to a corner, yeah, this is where we're going to sleep tonight. Just, and she wasn't trying to make a point, just said, oh yeah, we're going to sleep right here tonight. And it was just a little corner in the refugee tent. And I was like, wow. And I guess who's who's really working for them? You know, I'm working for a big steel company, making it profits. And I said, who's working for them? Um, and so that was when I decided I look. And it, it ties well into disorders. Like when I went and I, I saw this, the same people that I saw. So for me, that, that's, I think, what shifted my mindset and made me jump in. Even if I had doubts about maybe having to earn a living or take care of my family, that's more important. In my mind, that was more important because it's like these are people that have nobody to support them. So it was more like a vocation for you to go back and give back to the country where you came from. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the you continent, you know, as a whole, because yeah. I mean, there are a lot of women in Africa that, that don't have anybody l looking out for them. Okay, where do you go to discover new ideas? To MIT. <laughs> 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 Is that a good one? A quiet place. Okay. Can't be many of those in Lagos. No, there's <laughs> just say. one, by the way. <laughs> there's one, Caspar Gambini's, my favorite like restaurant. I go there all the time. It's just the best place. We'll have to get a note of that for the show notes. I think you've touched on this, but what's your perspective on failure? I have a saying, actually, and I, I, I think I came up with it myself, but maybe somebody did. It's, uh, it's like failure is only a temporary situation. It's what you do after that ultimately determines success. I don't believe there's such a thing as failure. If you fail at something, it's temporary until you decide or determine what you do. You can decide to fail by not doing anything or bounce back and figure out what to do after that. Same. Okay. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? I would say my children. Because they, they, they kind of, you know, they're at that age where they're always questioning, you know. So now it's uh, gay rights and 
you know, you're like, so they, they question, they make me question myself. Am I thinking right? Am I being fair? Am I being a hypocrite? So every day it's always like that. Uh-huh. Uh, for me, it's in my wife, you know, I, she definitely made me question myself and see whether I was a good person. How do you keep up with technology? MIT. <laughs> <laughs> I just follow Wally. Huh? That's true, yeah. And I just follow Apple. Okay. Apple is my All inspiration. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Tim Cook. Yeah. Um, and Mr. Jobs. Um, the impossible question. What would your advice be to someone just about to graduate to go study or has a dream, a grand ambition um, that's been told? Forget it. That's impossible. I mean, I believe human beings are infinitely capable of doing whatever they put their mind to. So if somebody accepts that, it's their fault. Um, absolutely. You know, you, you, you don't never give up. Okay. Grit. Tenacity. Grit. Yeah, there you go. We finished with a few questions, just a couple of other questions. Um, one that we're actually thinking of dropping, where well, we are going to drop in, we want to start doing events. Um, we're going to call the series of events Problems Worth Solving. You're definitely pro- solving one big problem that demands solving fast. Are there any other problems that are worth solving that you would highlight as the top? Absolutely. Other than poverty and, and the planet, which is environmental, um, I think inequity is a big problem that, that needs to be addressed and it's growing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a trend. Everybody's talking about growing inequity across the globe, but we need to figure out that. And that's one of my biggest challenges or biggest heartaches of living in, in Nigeria because I... I find it hard to live in a in a country or in a place where there's wide inequality. Yeah, I think for me it's gender equality, it's um, racism, it's uh, healthcare access and education. Okay, great. If you could return to one night or day in history, where and when? Because uh, my dad just passed away, so I would say it's uh, you know when it's any day where we're just sitting down, just having a good time talking. The same, I think specifically the day before he died which was November 10th. And I had just come back from Germany. I was in his house. And I just I, I, was, lay, I was laying on the couch. And he goes, yeah, go home. You're tired. You need to go home and uh, go rest. So I was like, okay, don't worry. I'll see you tomorrow. And that was it. Oh. So that's definitely one I would want to go back okay. to. Okay. That's a good answer. Uh, changing tack. Uh, what's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> New York, New York. <laughs> and it's Frank Sinatra. Yeah, of course. Song. Yeah, right. <laughs> Anything that one twelve is a song. Is a is a R and B group, and I know all their songs off off, off head. Or, or um, Drew Hill. I just love those two those two groups. All right, sounds like a good karaoke night in New York <laughs> with uh, both of you at some point in the future. <laughs> I, I am for Nigeria. I want to go. To Nigeria. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Lagos. Yeah. Best Netflix. Best Netflix or Amazon series or any other series, documentary, or film you've seen recently you think everyone should watch? Film, uh, King of Boys, number one. It's a Nigerian movie that is amazing. Okay. Joy. Uh, it's also about uh, sex trafficking. Uh, that's an amazing one to watch. And then, of course, Dynasty. Yeah. Dynasty. Yes. Wow. For me, Dexter. I love Dexter. <laughs> and you can binge watch Dexter for, for decades. I watch every single season. All right. Ooh, and Law and Order. <laughs> Law and Order. <laughs> Please. <Okay. laughs> What book, we've mentioned a few books, what book would you like us to offer our listeners that come up with the best comments in the comment section? Um, definitely Prosperity um, Prosperity Paradox uh, by Foster Drama. It's a fantastic read and, and also grit. Yeah. For me, it's um, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Um, Classic. 
a very good book. I learned uh, a lot of lessons from that book, and I was forced to read it, by the way. <laughs> Stephen Covey. <laughs> Final question. Who should we interview next? Temi Giwa. She's working on a company called Life Bank, where they provide on-demand blood to people in Nigeria. Wow. We might, uh, yeah, I agree with that. We, well, <laughs> we might have to come to Nigeria then yeah. to do that. Not just the yeah. karaoke. Because we don't do interviews unless it's face-to-face. Cause it's not well, next time she's in New York, I'll, I'll tell her to yeah. stop by. Okay, sounds great. Wonderful. Well, I'll just wrap up. So, um, I first of all, thank you both, Bilikis and um, Oluwale. Sounds like when you say it, you say Wali. Yeah, yeah, you can say Wally. Wally. Okay, Everybody okay. calls me Wally. Oh, okay, Wally. Okay, so thank you, <laughs> Wally. Sounds like a Scottish person from yeah, yeah from the West Wally. Coast. Hey, hey, Wally. Yes. Hey, I, hey, no, no more times. Hey, I've Wally. Heard that. Come on, let's get on all that football the field time. now and let's do all a Scotland Nigeria game. Um, no, in all seriousness. So, uh, Wally and Bilikis, I'd just like to acknowledge you for being provocateurs, agents of change, for redefining what many people may deem to be impossible but redefining it as possible um, in the area of um, recycling and plastics and creating economic opportunity where there wasn't. I think um, you're a credit to your nation and really set out the gold standard for other people to follow you and hopefully can scale what you're doing brilliantly. And is there anything we can do at the Impossible Network to connect you with impact investors and people that we know within our network? We'll certainly do it to help you. And just thank you for your energy, your beautiful balance of cynicism and optimism, because I think it creates a pragmatic approach to solving problems that clearly need to be solved. And just for your energy. Yeah, the energy you exude is amazing. And we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. It's been a real good pleasure. I didn't expect it to be this deep and in-depth and, and really relevant. So thank you for, for the time. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time. <laughs>